Welcome back to Smichas Chaver program. Great to be together again. As always, special thank you to our chairman, Benjamin Michel. Special thank you to the Skan Magid Shir, Dr. Morty Goldenberg. A special thank you to Phil Landau Esquire for the magnificent and entertaining write up each and every week. Deeply appreciate to everybody. I want to thank our sponsor tonight, the one and only the Rebbe Reb Nachum Braverman and family, sponsored in memory of his father, Shlomo Ben Chaim, whose yurt site was yesterday. And uh, Nachum, your dad is incredibly proud of the person that you are and the learning that you're doing. And this is such a beautiful tribute to him. Thank you and your family for your generosity and your sponsorship. Okay, it's good to see everybody, including the Schwer is now on from down live in Boca Raton, on location here in Abba. You could come to my office and sit like socially distanced with a mask. You could be the only live person. Be great. You're, you're invited. I'll get your daughter to make you something even piece of pie, some coffee. Okay, we start with the philosophical section, as we always do. I gave it to you earlier today in the WhatsApp group, and uh, I'm sure our faithful chairman will post it as well. And the Gemara Shabbos says the following, Gemara Shabbos, Dav Kuf Yutes, Omar Rav Hamnuna, Ko Mispal Be'er Shabbos, V'Omar Vayichulu Ma'ala Lovakasav Ki Lanasa Shutuf, L'Kadosh Baruch Hu B'Masa Bereshis. Again, since we're on the theme of Shabbos, we've been reviewing and repeating some of the things that we saw in earlier semesters regarding Shabbos, and we saw this Gemara earlier, the notion of when you recite Vayichulu, Vayichulu is the description of the creation of the world, the culmination, the climax of the description of the uh, creation of the world. And when a person testifies, when a person affirms that they believe that God is the creator, then that individual is Nasa Shutaf Lakalishbarhubmasabrashis. We become partners to the Ribbana Shalom. We become partners with the Almighty in creation. Shinemar, Vayachulu, Atikri Vayachulu, Ala Vayachlu. Amar Bilazami Naincha Dibur Kamaisa, Shinema Bidvarashem Shamayim Naasu. So the Gemara Shabbos here teaches that when we use words, words can be equivalent to action, just like they were for God. How did God create the world? Basar Mamar Never Olam. God created the world with speech recognition. Whenever I reference this Gemara, I probably did it in Smichas Chavar earlier as well. I always point out that our generation understands better than any other that came before what this means, the notion of speech recognition. Until now, you know, you read that God created the world by speaking. You said, please, what does that even mean? But today, you could speak to your phone, your car, your food processor, your oven. Everything will listen except your children and your spouse. But everything else you speak to, you can create things. It responds, it listens, it does what it's asked. If I only had speech recognition among our, our own family members. But it's an extraordinary thing. You speak to it and it listens and it does what it's, what it's supposed to do. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu used speech to create the world. And when we use speech, the speech of testimony, the speech of affirming that God is the creator, then we become a partner with him. So you see the power of speech. Speech can build and speech can destroy. Speech can elevate and speech can knock down. Speech can enrich and speech can corrupt. And that's what the Gemara says. The Zohar expands on this. The Zohar says, You're not supposed to speak on Shabbos the same way you do during the week. No politics on Shabbos. No coronavirus on Shabbos. What's left to talk about at your Shabbos table? Excellent question. But you're not allowed to talk about those things. Because those are vachadik, those are weekday topics. When you speak in a weekday type of language and a weekday type of topic and a weekday mode of speech, then the words we use down here below, those words shape and affect the cosmos up above and nifka mashabas, Shabbos becomes compromised. Ola. 
So your thoughts are not concrete. Thoughts are not real. So if on Shabbos you think about something you have to do during the week, if on Shabbos you have a thought about some idea about the new invention, your new entrepreneurial spirit, your new weekday activity, so it's not appropriate to be thinking about those things, but they're thoughts. But speech, once you speak, you create reality. God created a reality called this world when He spoke. We create a reality called being a partner with Hashem when we speak. And therefore, there's a big correlation between speech, creation, speech, and Shabbos. A person has to be particularly vigilant, particularly careful with how we speak on Shabbos. And that's what the Shlach Kodesh says on the bottom. The Shlach Masach HaShabbos, Shnei Luchos HaBrisrov, Yishai Levi Horowitz, he writes the following, person has to sanctify the speech, to protect their mouth from speaking negatively, and their lips from uttering untruths, uttering slander. And says the Shlach Kadosh, even if what you're saying is true, even if what you're saying is not necessarily bad, it's not Naveira. But if it's a weekday topic, then it's better to be quiet. So you see this notion about, uh, especially on Shabbos, being very aware of, very conscientious about the power of speech and what we're speaking about and how we speak and with whom we speak and how much we speak on, on Shabbos in particular. This comes up in two ways. We have the whole concept of Amir La'akum, which is a big area in Halacha. I'm sure Rav Eliyada would say it's Gishmak. Uh, maybe it's on our roster uh, eventually, Amir La'akam, what are you allowed to ask a non-Jew to do for you, what can you not ask? We've alluded to uh, some corollaries of the topic, but not, not dressed it uh, straight on. And the second area that applies to is all week long, but especially on Shabbos is not using profanity, nivelpeh, lashon hara, what we speak about, how we speak, and so on. Shabbos is a time to be particularly, particularly vigilant and careful about how we speak, because, uh, again, speech defines who we are and how we spend that day. How does this connect to the parsha? you ask? You are wondering. So in Parshas Vayesha, we have the story of Isha's Potiphar. This should perk up your ears late on a Sunday night, late for some of you. When the wife of Potiphar is seducing Yosef. So this is, you know, part of the section that you skip in school. But it's a really graphic, really descriptive, really very powerful advance that the wife of Potiphar puts on Yosef. She's relentless in pursuing him, in seducing him, in propositioning him. So much so that he's about to give in. Pasuk says that he came, Lasos Malachto, to do his work which one interpretation of Lasos Malachto means he was the accountant, he was the stockbroker, he was the, uh, whatever he did, he came to do his work, literally his work. But uh, Rashi quotes Chazal, the other interpretation Lasos Malachto meant he came to give in, he came to give in. There's an anomaly in the Pasuk, listen carefully. Pasuk says, Vatispaseyu bibigdo, lemor, she grabbed him by his clothing saying, Shechva, may sleep with me. And he left his clothing in her hands, and he ran out and he fled outside. Now, we know that we have um, Chazal tell us, the Rabbi say Medrash from here, that in the merit of Yosef running out, just like Vayanas Hachutza, so similarly, Hayam Ra'ah Vayanas, the sea split in the merit of, of Yosef. The coffin of Yosef passed through the sea, and when the coffin of Yosef passed through the sea, the sea split, and it's a cute play on words. It describes Yosef running away as Vayanas Vayatza Hachutza, Hayam Ra'ah Vayanas, what's the connection between the two? That's not for now, but I have a beautiful insight on that, a beautiful thought on that. What I want to draw your attention to is a peculiar word in this Pasuk. It's Perak Lamates Pasuk Yudbez, chapter 39, verse 12, in the book of Genesis, Parshas Vayeshev. And the girl of the Vilna Gon asks, why is the Torah using the word Lemor? 
If you listen carefully to the Pasuk, that word lemor doesn't belong. Let me read it to you again. She grabbed him by the clothing lemor. What should it say if it's referencing the wife of Potiphar? She's seducing him. She grabs him. She tries to throw him on the bed. She's really just relentlessly pursuing him, more than propositioning him, more than coming on to him. And lemor shechvayimi, sleep with me. So what should it say? Not lemor, but... Anybody here while I take a drink? If she's the one speaking, the wife of Potiphar, she should say, She grabbed him by the clothing, and she said, And she said, What do you mean she grabbed him by the clothing? Well, how does Laymor fit in? So the Gra says the following. Listen to this chat from the Gra. He says that when a person uses inappropriate words, they're not just words, they're not superficial or external. But those words have an effect on us. Those words shape and they create a reality. So Aisha's Potiphar was grabbing Yosef by the clothing, and she was lemor. She wanted him to say, Shechva imi. It wasn't she saying to him, Sleep with me. She grabbed him, and she was trying to draw out of him that he himself would say to her, Sleep with me. Why? Because once he would say those words, it was a done deal. Once he would utter those words, she'd have him right where she wants him. Says the girl, the Lemur is not what she's saying to him. The Lemur is what she's trying to get her, him to say to her. Because if she could only get him to say those words, me, then she would have him right where she wants him. However, Yosef never says the words. How does he react? When he hears that, when he understands that she's strategic in her thinking, when he understands that she's not just trying to proposition him, she's trying to get him to say, imi, because once he says those words, then it's a done deal, it's all over. That's when he says, I'm out of here like Vladimir. That's when he says, I can't risk that I'm going to say those words. If I say those words, I, those words are might as well the beginning of having done that deed. So therefore, he leaves his clothing in her hands and he runs out. And he runs out. So you see the power of speech, particularly on Shabbos. All week long, we have to be careful. Nivol pep, profanity. Those learning Sechus Pesachim, doing Zichru. No, it's on Daf Gimel, the zoo, where a person has to be careful with their words. And um, the Gamal, the zoo. No? Morty, I didn't get that right? I'm back on. I'm back on for Pesachim. Tesvav is tough, but I'm back on. So anyway, so, um, so our words are careful all week long, but particularly on Shabbos, where words... Uh, where words shape reality, we have to be very vigilant on Shabbos. Now, Ravelia does a story here. Should I tell you the story? Go right to the halacha. I'll tell you the story. I found it a very disturbing story. But he says it's a real story. The story is the following. Around 30 years ago, there was a businessman in Brooklyn. He took the train to work in Manhattan every day. And one day on his way to the subway, he noticed right in front of the Jewish, the kosher butcher shop, there was a truck. And on the side of the truck was a picture that said Boar's Head. It was Boar's Head is the brand of uh, Chazer. And uh, that was the side of the brand of the side of the truck. And he noticed that the owner of the butchery was carrying packages out of the back of this refrigerated boar's head truck into his butcher shop. So he calls the Rav Machshir of the Heksha that it's under. And the rabbi tries to calm him down. He says, I'm going to get a look into it. I'm going to send someone right away to go check it out. But this man is incredulous. He can't believe what he sees. He starts to call the whole world, his friends. He tells everybody. And he says, and he says, uh, can you believe it? I see the owner of this kosher butcher shop. He's carrying packages from the back of this refrigerated truck with boar's head on the side. There's no way this place is kosher. People shouldn't use it. And as a result of his uh, spreading the word, the butcher shop closes. Not only does the butcher shop go out of business and close, 
The butcher is devastated from this experience and the loss of his butcher shop, and within six months he has a massive heart attack and he dies. Fast forward a few years, right? That's not usually how these good stories end, right? Fast forward a few years, and uh, a couple weeks before Rosh Hashanah, the businessman is on his way to the subway, and he sees that Boar's Head truck is in front of the same store. There's no butcher shop there anymore. The butcher shop closed years ago. The butcher died. And he can't help but wonder, why is the uh, Boar's Head truck parked in front of what is now a Verizon store? So he couldn't contain his curiosity, and he goes up to the driver, and he says, what are you doing here? The butcher shop shut down. What are you here for? There's a phone, a mobile phone store, the Verizon store. So he says, let me tell you the craziest thing that happened. He said, a couple of years ago, my, um, my truck was broken. I had a flat tire right in this same spot. And the refrigeration of the truck was going bad. And there was a guy who had a butcher shop here. And he had such a generous heart. He ran out and he told me I could keep the things that were frozen in the truck in his freezer until someone comes along to fix the truck. That way I won't lose all the inventory from the truck and it'll be able to, it'll be able to save it. Such a friendly man. He was so generous. Do you know what happened to him? You know what happened to the butcher shop? Of course, this man knew what happened because he basically killed him and he killed his business. He killed the butcher shop. So the man went to Rav Ruvain Feinstein Shlita and he asked him, what should he do? So Rav Ruvain said, listen, your Lashon Hara literally killed a man, but Hashem brought the truck back so that you would meet that driver and you'd find out what happened. You need to bring 10 people to his kever before Rosh Hashanah. You need to beg Mechila from him, then go to his Amman and his children and tell them that you'll take care of them. You'll provide the Parnassah that you robbed them from by what you did to the man for the rest of their lives. You took away their Parnassah, you have to give it back. And that is the end of the story. It's an interesting story. It's a little bit of a disturbing story, but he brings that story, Rabbi El Yada, for all of us to remember the power of words. Words can destroy, words can murder, words can kill. And therefore, we want us to be very, very careful with how we use our words. We could ruin a business, we can destroy lives, we can take the life of a person. A person has to be very, very careful. And in this case, nobody lived happily ever after, but hopefully we can live happily ever after if we learn the lesson of this terrible, horrific story. Okay, on to the halacha. Hopefully what we're going to get up to tonight is the following question. I'm not going to read its questions, but I will provoke you with my own. Your button falls off your, shaw- your shirt on Shabbos. You ate too much. There's no kiddush, but does not holding you back from still stuffing your face. You had the Friday night challenge. You had the Shabbos morning. Now you get home from shul at uh, 10 a.m. challenge. Then you had the challenge at lunch. And by Shalashudas, the button on your shirt popped off. Is the button muktza? Is it muktza? Can you pick it up? Can you put it in your pocket? What is the status of a button that pops off your shirt? Would anyone like to take a guess? I didn't think so. Okay, so hopefully we'll get to uh, enough learning tonight that we'll be able to answer that question. We last left off, I believe, in our abridged shear last uh, Sunday night with the question of tefillin. The question of uh, tefillin. The Ramah, according to Beis Yosef, and uh, Beis Yosef and Ramah allow you to wear tefillin, Shalol Lashem Mitzvah, and therefore it's a Klisha Malachto Laheter, um, versus the Taz and the Magan of Ram, that tefillin, not for the purpose of a mitzvah, is forbidden on Shabbos, and therefore it's a klisha malachto le'isra, you can only wear it tzarek gufo and tzarek makomo, and then we talked about the uh, case of the of the shofar, of the lulav, what is its status uh, What is its status today? Dr. Oppenheimer clarified for me last week, after Shir, he sent me the, um, he sent me the selection from Shmir Shabbos, that quotes for Shlomo Zalman, that uh, today, um, nowadays a shofar is muktzah machmas ches from kiss, except for elul. The shofar is considered to be, if you read Dr. Lando's, Dr. Lawyer Lando's uh, write-up, he referenced what I spoke about last week, which was the shofar of uh, Maizaidi, of my father-in-law's father, 
who blew shofar, and I was zocha to that shofar. And uh, it's a precious family heirloom. I wouldn't sell it for, for anything. So it's muksa machmas from kiss. However, Shlomo Zaman says, all year long you put it aside and you have no intent to take it out. It's behind your break front, which, is, uh, which has an alarm on it. But Elul, you're blowing it every day of Elul, so it's already out. So that doesn't suggest that it's of any less value to you, but the fact that you're using it and it's available, it's accessible, and it's uh, active, means that it doesn't have the chesar and kiss part, chesar and kiss part, and therefore during Elul, the Shabbosim of Elul, it would not be muksa machmos chesar and uh, kiss. It'd be a klisha malachta l'isser. That tzarach gufa tzarach mekoma, if you wanted to use it as a paperweight or move it because it was taking up room, you would be allowed to. Okay, which brings us up to the next subject, which is the question of moving klisha malachta l'isser with a kikar or a tinak. What is this referencing? What is this, uh, what is this referencing? So um, I'll tell you a story as a background to this. Yvette Kaublum is the head of our Hebra Kadisha. What does Hebra Kadisha have anything to do with Muktzah? Why am I telling Yvette Kaublum stories tonight? So Yvette Kaublum is the head of our, she's incredibly vigilant, loves her work. I've never met someone so dedicated to a mitzvah. And the Rambam writes that every Jew has their mitzvah. The Rambam, that's the pshat. So the Rambam says, how is it a schus to have so many Torah and mitzvos? What's the schus of so many Torah and mitzvos? It's the beautiful Ramban, the Rambam, the Ma'aral, there are many answers given. The Rambam says, the more mitzvos we have, the more likelihood that we'll find our mitzvah. Every Jew is their mitzvah. One Jew loves Megillah, one Jew loves Shofar, one Jew loves Lulav, one Jew loves Eruv Tchumen, one Jew loves Echves, one Jew loves uh, Hakel. Every Jew has a mitzvah. So the more he gave us, here, Balaam Torah Mitzvah gave us 613. You'll find your mitzvah that you love. You're, you're the Erev Jew. You're the Erev Tavshilin Jew. You're the Patasadurim and Chamashim Jew. You're the Ma'ake Jew. You're the Bedikas Chamech Jew. Everybody has their, their mitzvah they'll find. So Yvette's mitzvah is Chevra Kadisha. She loves Chevra Kadisha. So uh, our Chevra had recently done a Tahara with another Chevra in South Florida. For whatever reason, it was a complicated case. And the uh, Chevras uh, collaborated to do it together. And afterwards, as Jews are wont to do, the other Chevra offered their unsolicited opinions about the Minhagim of our Chevra and uh, second-guessed some of them. So Yvette called me second-guessing, or at least relaying the second-guessing of some of our customs. So what did we do? We called uh, the expert in Chevra Kadisha and Tahara today. Anyone know who that is? In New York. Rabbi Hanan Zon. Rabbi Zon is the, is the expert in America on, on Tahara Chevra Kadisha. So one of the things that they said that we're doing wrong is that if somebody dies on Shabbos, or before Shabbos, and right. the funeral home has to pick them up on Shabbos, you have to put a challah on top of them in order for the funeral home to be able to pick them up. So that was ridiculous. And I said it was ridiculous. Baruch Hashem Rabbi Zon agreed it was ridiculous, so it was actually heard. And uh, it was ridiculous. Where did it come from? Why did the other Hebra Kadisha mistakenly think and rebuke our Hebra Kadisha that if somebody dies on Shabbos, that their body can't be picked up by Gentiles, mind you, not being picked up by Jews. Being picked up, obviously, Jews are not driving a hearse or driving a, um, a vehicle to pick up a, a deceased on Shabbos. They have to put a challah on top. Where did this come from? What is this? Hebejibi Kabbalistic magic? No. Look at the Shulchan Aruch and Sifei. We're on chapter 308. And our... Did he put it in the... Uh, is the link in the comments? Chairman. Before Gersh gets you, I'll get you. Chapter 308. And uh, Sifhei. We're up to Sifhei. So the Shulchan Aruch says the following. Yesh matir l'tato klisha malachto l'isr, afilu mechama l'tzeel ayyidei kikar o tinok. Some allow you to carry a kli, a utensil, shemalachto l'isr, 
who primarily is used for something forbidden, even from the sun to the shade. Now, if you recall, we said you're allowed to move a klisha malachta like a scissors, or like a hammer. Both of those are utensils that can be used in a permissible or forbidden way, but are primarily used in a forbidden way. That was the definition of klisha malachto le'iser. You're allowed to move them if you're using them, i.e. to break a walnut or as a paperweight, um, or to cut chicken, let's say if it's a scissor, but you're not allowed to move it from the sun to the shade. So one of the ways we said you're allowed to do it is you could ask a non-Jew. Another way say you're allowed to do it is because you'll use it later to crack the walnut, and even though it won't be till much later, and even though you're only cracking a walnut with it, so you could save it. If you recall, we said those are two permissible ways. So here the Shulchan Ar throws in a third way. You know how you can carry the hammer or the scissor, even though it's a klisha malachta le'iser. The way you can carry it is put a piece of bread, a loaf of bread, or a child on top of it, and that somehow overcomes the muksa definition of it. Where does this come from? When the Gemara said, Lo amru kikar the Gemara said, placing non-muqta items on top of it allows you to move it only for the removal of a corpse. That was talking about muqta machmas gufo. Muqta machmas gufo. All muqta machmas gufo may not be moved on Shabbos even with a kikar or tinuk, except for a mace. But when moving, klisham lachtal iser is permitted by placing a non-muqta item on top of it even when not moving it with tzoruch gufo u makomo. So again, where did it come from? The Gemara is the one who introduced the idea that you could put a non-muqta valuable item and by putting the non-mukta valuable item, you could even move a mukta item. What was the non-mukta valuable item? The Gemara's example was a kikar, a loaf of bread, or a tinok, or a child. And the Gemara qualified it. You see, a mace, people don't know that when someone dies on Shabbos, a dead body is mukta. A dead body is mukta. It doesn't, so to say, have a purpose. It's mukta. And, uh, and therefore, you're allowed to touch, but you're not allowed to move um, a dead body on, on Shabbos. However, the rabbis out of Kavad Abrios, let's say that dead body were in the sun, that that dead body needs to be refrigerated and you need to move it, but it's Muktza Machmas Gufo. How do you move it when it's Muktza Machmas Gufo? If you put a challah on top of it, or you put, I wouldn't recommend this, a child on top of it, then you can move the corpse, you can move the deceased body. Something Muktza Machmas Gufo can be moved if something non Muktza is on top of it. That is where this Chavar Kaddisha got the absurd and uh, totally mis conceived notion that you have to put a challah on top of the deceased if the non-Jewish funeral home is going to come and pick up the body on Shabbos from the hospital. Of course, you should not waste a challah. That would be baltashchus to put a challah on top of a corpse in that in that way. Now, the Mishnah Bura Sivkan Chavav, Mishnah Bura in subparagraph 26, clarifies and writes, Lav davka kikar, not necessarily a challah, hua dinim nasan shar besocha, any other permissible item on top. This opinion is the opinion of the Rosh. Many of the earlier commentaries disagree. That this only, right, because the, the, the Machaber upstairs, the Shulchan Aruch, when I quoted this in paragraph 5, that was the opinion of the Rosh. But here, many say, no, no, no. That whole little trick where you put a non muqta item on top and it lets you move it, that's only for a dead body. So the Mishnah Bura says the following, that many Rishonim disagree with the Rush. 
the Shulchan Aruch on top quoted the Rush and said that a klishim Iser, do the little trick where you put a non-mukta item on top of it and then you could move mukta. So if you have a hammer and you don't want to use it to crack a walnut and you don't want to be the tato menatzad, you're not going to move it indirectly. You want to be able to carry it and move it. Well, what hatter do you have? So the Shulchan Aruch quoted the Rush said, put something non-mukta, put a challah roll on top of the hammer and now you can lift the hammer and move the hammer. However, the Mishnah Buddha says that was the rush. And even though Shulchan Aruch seems to paskin like the rush, there are many, many who disagree. And they differentiate between the case of the non-muktza on top of the muktza to a case where the muktza item entire purpose is to hold the non-muktza item. In the latter case, you're allowed to move the muktza together with the non-muktza. So really, the whole idea of putting non-muktza on top of muktza only works for a dead body. But that is forbidden when you're putting the non-muktza on top of the muktza to move the muktza. But... If you have mukta and non-mukta, for example, let's say the Mishnah gave this example. You have a crusher. Shum bimidocha. What's shum? Garlic. What's a meducha? A garlic press. So you have garlic inside a garlic press. So are you allowed to move the crusher? The crusher is a klisha malachto leiser. It has minced garlic inside of it that's not been yet been removed. So of course you're allowed to move it. Similarly, if you have a pot with food, we already said, what's the status of a, of a dirty pot? A pot is a kli. What do you do with a pot? You use it to cook, which is a prohibited activity on Shabbos. So the status of a pot is a kli. You use a pot to cook, which is prohibited on Shabbos. So what does that mean? How are you supposed to serve on Shabbos? If your pots have food in them, what are you supposed to do? So the answer is, that's what the Mishnah Buru here is qualifying. In the case of the garlic still inside the press, or food that's inside a pot, the pot or the garlic press are bottled, they're nullified to the food. The food is the primary, and the, the utensil is considered the secondary, and therefore the utensil gains the status of the food. Since the food is not muktzah, the utensil in this situation is not muktzah either. What's the practical halacha, though, about putting non-muktzah on top of muktzah? So look at the Yalkut Yosef, source 51. Source sheets are in the chat, Right? The source sheets are in the chat, I hope. On the source sheets, they will be shortly. So source 51, the Yalkut Yosef says the following. You're allowed to carry a utensil whose primary purpose is forbidden activity. By putting a loaf of bread or some other non-mukta item on top of it. So if you hammer sitting in your backyard... Come on from shul and you say, oh my goodness, my hammer's in my backyard. This is my trusty hammer. It's a klisha malachta le'iser. If I leave it there, it's going to get destroyed. The sun, the humidity, the rain, it's going to get destroyed. So I have a few options. I could ask Junior to move it. We forgot to turn the refrigerator light off in my refrigerator this Friday night. I discovered that when I went to get the grape juice for Kiddush. It's a good thing we let the candles into the house because there was a little shalom bias moment. So left the door open and told my kids, run back to shul quickly, catch Junior before he goes home. So they got Junior. Junior told them he'd be there in a few minutes. He came a few minutes later. And when I thanked him profusely, he said, I have three more houses I have to go to to do the same thing. So it's a good thing. Thank God we've got Junior. Junior's very busy on his, on his Shabbos. We're not the only moron family on the circle. It's good to know. Very reassuring. So option number one is I can get Junior and say, Junior, can you move my hammer from my backyard? Why does that work? Because we said on Mira La'akam on Mukta, asking the Nanjir to move Mukta is permissible if there's any permissible method for you yourself to move it. 
And since there's a permissible method of moving it when it's Sorach Gufa Omakomo, I can ask Junior to move it. That's option one. Option two is I can move it to crack the walnut or to be a paperweight. Or option three says, Rav Avadi Yosef is, I can put a challah roll, I could put a little rugalach, I could put some of Chef Gersh's upcoming brand new kakash cake on top of the hammer, and then I'd be allowed to carry the hammer inside. However, Ravavadya qualifies, like we did, that this neat little trick of putting non-mukta on top of mukta to move it only works for klisha malach to Mukta something that is intrinsically forbidden, like a dead body, like rocks, like sand. These things are, are intrinsically mukta machmas gufa. It's not a kli, like money. It's mukta machmas gufo. It's intrinsically mukta. Putting something non mukta on top of it would not help you be able to move it. Shmir Shabbos is stricter than Rabavadya. This psak of Rabavadya really applies to Svardim. We have our Svardim on tonight. You're lucky. Rabavadya says that you could use this trick. However, the Shmir Shabbos says no. Only makam hefsed maruba. If your hammer is really expensive, if you stand to lose something that's very, very valuable, then you can rely on the old put the non-muktza on top of the muktza to move a trick. But if it's not something that you stand to lose a lot of money, then don't. Shmir Shabbos Kilchasa, it's Perak Chaf, Sif Katan, Yud Zayin. Additionally, Rabbi Kiva Eger, source 52, the great Rabbi Kiva Eger, source 52, says the following, Klishim Lachtel Iser, this is in Shulchan Arach, Hu Adin Klishu Muktza Machmas Chesron Kis near Demutter. He says, you could be maker like the Shulchan Arach in terms of putting non-Muktza on Muktza, even if it's Muktza Machmas Chesron Kis. Now normally, Muktza Machmas Chesron Kis is the stricter category of Klisha Malach Iser, yet Rabbi Kiva Eger allows you, if you put non-Muktza on top of Muktza, of a Klisha Malach Iser, that's Muktza Machmas Chesron Kis. So if you put a Ragalach on top of your Mila knife, if you put a Ragalach on top of your on top of your shechita knife. Then, you put a ragalach on top of your smartphone, even if you assume it's klisha malachto, it's a mukta machmas chisar and kiss, which we saw was a machlokas. Depends on how you view a smartphone. Then Rabbi Kiva Eger says, you'd be allowed to employ this trick for even mukta machmas chisar and kiss. Of course, the Shemir Shabbos says, only in a case where you stand to lose a lot of money. And the Yalkut Yosef says, as long as it's defined as a mukta, as long as it's klisha malachto iser, not mukta machmas gufo. Okay, next subject. Okay, next deal deal with objects that break on Shabbos. Objects that break on Shabbos. The Mishnah Shabbos, source 53, page 17 in the source sheets, source 53, says the following. The Mishnah Shabbos, where's my Zichru guys? Morty, what daf is this Mishnah on? Anything that breaks on Shabbos, the broken pieces can be carried with them as long as the broken pieces can still fulfill the original um, activity that the utensil was designed to do. So, for example, if you have a jug and the jug breaks on Shabbos, if the shattered piece of the jug can still hold some oil or some liquid, then it's not muktza. Shivrei areva l'chazabem is shivrei tzchuchas l'chazabem is like, let's say you have a shattered uh, shards of something that you can use as a cover. You could put it on top. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, Rabbi Yehuda disagrees. And Rabbi Yehuda has a, uh, argues, says you're only allowed to move the pieces on Shabbos if they can still be used for an original intended purpose. 
So you have a fundamental machlokas here in this Mishnah, between the Tanakama and Rabbi Yehuda. A utensil breaks on Shabbos. Are the broken pieces mukta? Now why is this important? I'll give you a practical example. We're going to talk about the button that falls off your shirt or your suit jacket. But I'll give you another example. Somebody breaks, I won't say who, I have a favorite shot glass. It was. Aloha shalom, my favorite shot glass. I have a lot of different shot glasses. This was my favorite. It wasn't meant to be that I would continue to enjoy it and that would continue to be my favorite. So it was dropped on a Shabbos. It's mamash from Hashem. And it, and it broke on the floor. So how do you pick up the pieces? Are they mukta? Are the broken pieces mukta? You could sweep them up because clearly they're dangerous. Can you pick them up directly with your hand? Or do you have to sweep them up indirectly by using a broom? Well, how do you view broken pieces? That's what this mission is dealing with. And Morty's correct. Shabbos kuf chav dalad amid beis. So, how do you relate to broken pieces? Morty, I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. So, it's Machlok is Tanakama and Rabbi Yehuda. Tanakama is of the opinion that they can be moved if they have any usage, if they have any value. So, broken earthenware jug can be used to cover a barrel. So, true, it used to be an earthenware jug and it held your oil and it held your salad dressing, and it held your whatever, thank you, Sam. But once it broke, you can still use the shard. What will you use the shard for? You can still use the shard to cover a barrel. So Tanakama says, as long as it has some value and some use, that's good enough. Rabbi Yudha says, no, 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 no. Not any use, not some use. It has to still maintain the capacity for its original use. So if it's a broken part of a jug, it has to still be able to hold oil. If it can't hold oil, even if now you can use it as the cover of a, of a barrel, not good enough. How do we paskin in this machlokas? How do we paskin? So the Beis Yosef quotes a machlokas rishonim. Do we paskin like, do we follow the Tanakama? It could be any use, the broken piece. Or do we follow Rabbi Yehuda? It has to be the original use. Shochanach sif vav. That's the background. And here's how we get to the Shochanach. Shochanach says the following. All the utensils that break, even at Shabbos, like my favorite shot glass, you're allowed to carry the broken pieces. As long as they have any use, So a broken shard that's no longer a jug or it's no longer a, a bowl, but it can be used as a cover, can be used to seal something. Azoi, that's good enough. So who is the Shulchan Aruch Paskening like? Which opinion on the Gemara and Shabbos? Like? Tanakama. Like the Tanakama. If you look at the Nun, in the Beragola, Beragola knew the source. Shabbos Kufchadal, B'Mishnah, Uke Tanakama. It's giving, isn't Halacha fun when you go to the original source and then you see the Machalak Yisrishon? If we were just learning Shulchan Aruch straight, you wouldn't even understand where this comes from. When you have the background, it puts it in a certain context and a certain uh, perspective, which is an enormous benefit. So the Shulchan Aruch and Sivvav here, Paskins like the Rif and the Rambam, who hold like the Tanakama, that the shards that are broken are not mukta, if they can be used for any purpose, not necessarily their original purpose. So when a jug breaks, the small shards that have no use are mukta, but the larger ones that have some use, creatively come up with some use for them, then they won't be mukta. The Bir Alacha, Dibra Maschal Kola Kalim, quotes the Prima Godam. We're not going to read it inside. Okay, we'll read it inside. Fine, because you asked. Kola Kalim, I am Prima Godam, Mishpitzozav, Shemitzade Dezea Din Koi Af Al Kalim Shemalachton Le Isser. This rule applies even to a Kli Shemalachton Le Isser. What does that mean? You're allowed to move a Kli Shemalachton Le Isser that breaks on Shabbos 
L'tzorach gufa umakomo, if the shards are big enough to cover the opening of a barrel. See here, it's not just a klisha malach to laheter. So it's not just that your pitcher broke. It's not just that your earthenware bowl serving dish broke. It's not just that my favorite shot glass, which clearly I'm not bitter at all about, broke. Because those were klisha malach to laheter. Those were utensils that you could use for a permissible purpose. And now the question is, does the broken piece also get used for a permissible purpose? But even a klisha malach to laheter. So that means to say that my, my scissors or my hammer broke. So just like I could use the simmer, scissor or hammer, tzorach gufa, tzorach mekomo, to crack the walnut, if the broken piece of the hammer could still be a paperweight, it's not mukta. That's how the Bir Halacha understands from the Primagadim, expands this halacha about broken pieces as a halacha that's not only relevant to klisha malach to leheter, but that's also relevant to klisha malach to leheser. Very good. Now, Rava in the Gemara and Shabbos, Daf Kuf Chav Dalad, teaches that when the Tanakama allows you to move the shards of a Kli, when those shards can be used for another purpose, that's true even if the specific purpose doesn't apply to you. So for example, anyone here have a barrel that they need to cover? I don't have a barrel that needs to be covered. But as long as in theory someone in the community has a barrel that gets covered and the broken shard of my, of my serving bowl could serve that purpose. It doesn't have to serve the purpose for me, but says the, says the uh, Rava in that Gemara that even if it serves the purpose for someone else. And that's what the Shulchan Aruch says in Sif Zion. Shulchan Aruch in paragraph 7, chapter 308, paragraph 7. If I have an earthenware a vessel that broke, and I have a shard that's big enough to cover a barrel, I'm allowed to use and carry that shard even on a barrel. Now what happens if it broke and I threw it out? Can I take it out of the garbage? Says the Shulchan Aruch, no. Why? Because what allowed me to continue to move it and carry it? Because I said it still serves a purpose. But if I put it in the garbage, what am I declaring in, implicitly with everything I put in the garbage? Implicitly, whatever I put in the garbage, I'm implicitly saying it has no value, it has no use. It's not, it's bottle to be a kli. It's no longer a, a vessel. So therefore the Shulchan Aruch here in Siv Zion, Paskin's like this Gemara. Number one, that I don't need to be able to use it myself. As long as it has a purpose, if not for me, for someone else, then it's okay. Good. Continuing, as opposed to broken shards of utensil, what about a rock? If a broken utensil could cover a barrel, well, why not say that a rock could cover a barrel? A rock could have a use. The rock could be a doorstop. The rock could be a paperweight. The rock could cover a barrel. So what? Oh, so the difference is, thank you, I think that was Dr. Michelle. Rava in the Gemara and Shabbos, Daf Mem Vav and Mem Zayim, source 54 and 50. 54, says the following. The Gemara says, why can't I carry the pebbles? Why can't I carry the rocks and stones? I can use them to cover a barrel. I can use them as a paperweight. I can use them to hold the door. So the Gemara there, Rava gives an answer, and he explains, no, even if a rock has a use, it's still muktzah. 
Why? So Ravavia answers, shards are not mukta since they were originally part of a kli, even after they're broken, if they have use, they retain their status and their identity as a kli. However, a rock was never defined as a kli to begin with. So since ikatoras kli alaha, this broken shard still maintains the status of a kli, because originally it was part of a kli, even when it's broken, as long as it has a use, it's still a kli. But a rock and a pebble, it was muktzamach gufo. It never was a kli. It was never a utensil. And the Shulchan Aruch paskins like this Gemara at the end of Siv Zayin. Skip the Ramah, keep reading. Davka chatichas cheras mishim da'asim mishivrei kli. Shards of a utensil, shards of earthenware are not muktza as long as they have a use because they originated from a vessel. Aval davar she'ein bashayichas kli. But something that was never a vessel was never a utensil. Kigol, like tsroros or avonim, like pebbles or rocks. Afa pishruin l'chasbem kli even though they seem to fulfill the same function, since they never had the status of a utensil, osir letaltalam. You're not allowed to move them. Mishnabura sifka nechavches. Mishnabura says, Ratzalam avalam rinin kevin de'esmol kuli ze'alav lahim alachakai havalei nolad. The shards are not muktzah because on the outside of Shabbos, they were a full-fledged kli. Since they have still the use for some purpose, they don't lose the status of Kli. But the rock that never had the status of a utensil, a rock, was a rock, is a rock, will always be a rock, unless I declare before Shabbos that the rock is a paperweight. When Shabbos began, it was a rock, even if it can serve a wonderful purpose, if when Shabbos began, it was a rock, and only a rock, then it was never a Kli. It was never a Kli. Okay. Shulchan Aruch Sif... What? If we say migo de because Migo de right. Because migo, since at the outside of Shabbos it was muktzah, it remains muktzah. As opposed to the broken shard, which at the outside of Shabbos it was part of a kli, which was permissible, even though it now broke, it still retains the status of... Now that's only the bigger parts. The smaller parts of the kli, the tiny shards, that can't be the cover of a barrel, that can't hold any oil or salad dressing, can't dip your challah into it. If it has no purpose or usage then it is mukta. The only time we say it's not mukta is if it can still have any purpose, even if it's not one that serves me directly, because it came from something that was the status of a kli when Shabbos began. Now the Shulchan Aruch in Yud Aleph, Sivka and Yud Aleph, we're still in chapter 308, paragraph 11. Shulchan Aruch says the following. Machat Shlema. I have a needle, a complete needle. Mutal atatala litol ba'esakots. You're allowed, it's a needle mukta on Shabbos. Is a needle mukta? Sewing needle. So Shulchan Aruch says, no. Why is a sewing needle not mukta? Because it has a use. I can get out a, a uh, splinter. Now it shouldn't draw blood, but I can get out a splinter. Nita chuda ochor shala oser. V'chadasha shala nikvadayin mutter. So Shulchan Aruch is based on a Gemara in Shabbos of Kuvchav Gimel. And Shulchan Aruch says the following. A needle that breaks on Shabbos is mukta even if there's some other permissible use for it, like removing the splinter. So, a machat shlema, a complete needle, because I could take out a splinter, is not mukta. But a broken needle, even though it can still be used in theory to take out the splinter, the broken needle is mukta. Why? Why don't we follow? Isn't this Shulchan Arach a direct contradiction? Isn't it a stira to the previous Shulchan Arach? We just said that if I have, a, I have an earthenware serving bowl, and it breaks. If the big shards are big enough 
that they could still cover a barrel or to serve uh, salad dressing in, a dip in, Gersh's uh, shallot dip in, then they're not muktzah because they originated as a kli. Well, here too, the broken needle started as a whole needle and it still has a use that can take out a splinter. So why is the Shulchan Aruch here saying that a broken needle is muktzah even if it still has a use? This is a question that the uh, Achronim ask. It seems to be a steer, a contradiction in the Shulchan Aruch. The Chut Shani answers, of Nissan Karlitz. He says, why are broken shards different than a broken needle? Both were clear at the onset of Shabbos. Both can be used for some permissible purpose now. So he explains that it was not common to use broken shards to cover the opening of a barrel. But when a needle broke, it was thrown away. As uncommon as it is to use broken shards to cover a barrel, it's not only uncommon, it's unheard of essentially to keep a broken needle. A broken needle always got thrown out right away. So only broken items that you would keep and serve a purpose are not muktzah. But a broken item, which is disposable, even if in theory it can serve a purpose, but it's designed to be disposable when it's broken, then it's muktzah. That's how he answer. It's not a stira. When the Shulchan Aruch says that another one vessel that breaks, the shards are big enough to serve a purpose, they're not muktzah because they were once a kli, they retain the status of kli. Whereas a whole needle that broke, even though that broken needle can still remove a splinter, since a broken needle is always dis- thrown out, it has the status of being disposable. Something disposable is considered to be muktzah. So, so the you, make the same, you say the same thing about a, a plastic bowl. Oh, Dr. Michelle's on his game tonight. He had his coffee, his nighttime coffee. So the Chutzani says the following, source 55, based on that answer, he says the following, maybe nowadays we should forbid the pieces of broken kalim because we never use them for anything. Every broken clee should have the status of a broken needle because if nobody's going to salvage the broken shard of something, so he says the following, he says, no, you don't say that. Why? He says, the only reason that we don't use broken things today is we're a spoiled, entitled generation. We're spoiled. Everything's disposable. Even whole, complete kalim are disposable. How often do you upgrade your dairy cutlery, your flesh cutlery, this serving spoon, let's get new wine glasses. Nothing's broken and we're replacing it. Kalvachomer, all the more so when something breaks, we treat it as disposable and we get rid of it. But says uh, Rav Nissen Karlitz, but strictly speaking, strictly speaking, you don't have to. It still has a purpose. The broken needle was disposed of because you couldn't really use it. Nobody would use it. Our broken things we dispose of, not because you can't use it, but only because we're so spoiled. Therefore, So since if you lacked any other alternative, if you didn't have the luxury of being a spoiled rotten brat and upgrading and uh, cycling out your kalim on a regular basis, then you would use a broken one. So therefore, that's why a broken piece of pottery or glass that's big enough to cover up something, you're allowed to use it it's not considered muksa. You could use it even for another purpose. Now, there's two caveats to this. The two caveats. First is a Gemara and Shabbos, for, source 56. Source 56, bottom of page 17. Gemara and Shabbos, Kuv 
Amar of Papa, Imzarkum Vajon Ashpa Asura. And we already saw this in the Machaber. If you threw it out on Friday, if you already put it in the garbage on Friday, you can't take it out on Shabbos and claim it still has a use. Why? Because if you threw them out on Friday, even if it still has the same original use as the original clay, your action revealed that you have no use, you have no regard for it. You already declared it purposeless by having thrown it out. And that's what the Shulchan Aruch Paskins. We saw that at the end of Sif. Uh, we saw that. The Shulchan Aruch and Sif Zayin Paskins like this Gemara. Mishnabur and Sif Kamad Lamed Beis. Vuhu Adin Shanishbara B'Shabbos. Shulchan Aruch was talking about if the Kli broke on Friday and you put it in the garbage on Friday, even if on Shabbos you have a use for that Kli, you can't take it out. It's Muktza. Similarly, if you threw it in the garbage on Shabbos, so Mishnabura says that if you throw out the shards on Friday, but if you threw them out on Shabbos and then you decided to use them, I'm sorry, he says, hold on. Sifkat and Lamed Beis. Let's read that more carefully. Sorry. It's not, he's talking about if it broke on Shabbos, the same halacha would apply that it's not muktza. And that which we said, Bechol, is to teach me that only when I threw it in the garbage on Friday am I not allowed to use it. But if I threw it in the garbage on Shabbos and then I decide to use them, they're not muktza. They're not muktza. The fact that I threw it on Shabbos does not, is not mavatal Torah's kli, only if I throw it out on Friday. And because we wanted to make that distinction in the seifa, that's why the Machaber in the Resha is talked about a broke Bechol. Second caveat is the ruling of the Ramah in Sif Vav. Go back to Sif Vav, paragraph 6. And the Ramah, which we skipped, says the following. What if something broke in a place that people can hurt themselves? Like Phil Lando asked in the chat. So you have something glass that broke on the table. Or on the floor where people walk barefoot. You're allowed to move the broken pieces so that nobody gets hurt because of uh, physical danger. So even though they have no purpose, even though it seems that from here, in a case where they have no purpose, you're allowed to move them. So if a glass breaks on Shabbos in a place where people might be injured, you're allowed to move it on Shabbos. Now, again, can you move it with your hand? Or... Should you move it indirectly with a broom? So the Bir Alacha, not here, in Simon Tov Kuf Yerches, discusses whether you're allowed to move it with your hand, or you should move it Toto Manatzad, and he concludes Sarachim, but source 57. Source 57 is the end of this Chuva, the Chut Shani, of Nisan Karlat, and he says the following, That which we're allowed to move Mukta in a place where the Mukta can be damaging, when the mukta, when the broken thing can hurt, and we say you're allowed to move it, don't treat it like mukta. Why? Here's a little lumdus. I don't know if my chavrus is on tonight or not. Here's a little lumdus. When you're allowed to move mukta, where the mukta can be dangerous and hurt someone, why are you allowed to move it? Is that a din in what we call hutra or a din in dechuya? What's the difference between the two? Hutra means that there's no din mukta. The rabbis are the ones who gave us the halacha of mukta, and they said, when do you have to observe mukta? When it's not dangerous. But if it's a situation that's dangerous, 
then we do not impose upon you our laws of mukta. There is no mukta in the case of danger. Or, or, do you say, or do you say that, no, it's duchuya. It's not a hutra. It's not that um, the laws um, don't apply. They still apply. However, your responsibility to protect yourself and to be safe supersedes the prohibition of mukta. So how do you view the permissibility of moving mukta in a case of danger? Is it that in a case of danger, there never was a prohibition of mukta? Or do you say no? In a case of danger, there's still a prohibition of mukta. It's that avoiding the danger is paramount. It supersedes the prohibition of mukta. So if Nisan he's, Ka- he's saying Dechuyah, right? So his answer is, it's Dechuyah. There still is mukta. If it was that there's no mukta, then you'd be allowed to pick it up outright. There is no prohibition. He says it's not that it's it's a hutra, it's tuchuya. There still is a prohibition of mukta. It's just that being safe supersedes it. So if you could move the broken glass with your foot in a shoe, if you could if you could kick the glass aside or sweep it indirectly with a broom, then that is preferable. It's only if you can't do it well that way that you could pick the broken pieces up. This comes up in halacha. People break things on Shabbos. Sometimes, you know, you're tempted to bend down and pick up the really large pieces. It's easier to dispose of them that way. I don't know if it's safe, but it's easier to dispose of them that way. According to Nissan Karlitz, one should not do that. That is not the safe way to do it because we treat it at Tuchuya. We don't treat it as Hutra. That prohibition, by the way, Hutra Tuchuya, I'll just go on a tangent for a moment because this is fascinating. I once saw this in, in the Chashuk uh, Echemed, in the Chubas of Rav Zilberstein. You have this question about Shabbos. When a doctor on Shabbos drives to the hospital or writes orders or cuts a person open, which is a malach of Chavala, why are they allowed to do that on Shabbos? Because we know that the laws of Pikuach Nefesh, of saving a life, supersede the laws of Shabbos. So the question is, is that Hutra or Dechuya? Is it Hutra or Dechuya? Is it that the Torah says we have a concept called Shabbos, but if you need to save a life, it's not that there's Shabbos, but you're allowed to violate it, there is no Shabbos. Or do you say, no, when someone's life is in danger, there's still a Shabbos, and you're still bound by those laws. It's just that saving a life is more important than supersedes. There are many, many nafkaminas, many practical differences, including how doctors should conduct themselves. But here's a fascinating one. A non-Jew was a candidate for conversion. And we know the halacha is, I just mentioned this in another shir, in another context, I don't remember which, the halacha is, oh, I remember, Friday, turn Friday into Arab Shabbos. The halacha is, Goisha Shavas, Chayav Misa. A non-Jew is not allowed to keep Shabbos. Non-Jew is not allowed to keep Shabbos. In fact, some non-Jew wrote a comment on YouTube telling me that Shabbos was given to all the world. Didn't I read Genesis? It's not true. But a non-Jew is not allowed to keep Shabbos. Shabbos was given, a Kodesh Baruch Hu says, Matana Tova Yeshli Azai. I have a wonderful gift just for my Jewish people, and that's called Shabbos. And if a non-Jew violates Shabbos, they get the death penalty. Very difficult and painful for a conversion candidate when we tell them, until you actually go to the mikvah, you got to turn a light switch on. You have to do something. There's the old very bad joke about the non-Jew who doesn't hold to the Erev. That's how they violate Shabbos every week, by not holding to the Erev. Bad joke. So here was the question that was posed to the Chashuk Yechemed, to Rav Zilberstein. you got a conversion candidate who's a doctor who goes into the hospital to save lives on Shabbos wants to know, can that count as their Chilo Shabbos? The fact that they drive to the hospital to save a life, 
does that count as Chil Shabbos? So if Zoberstein's Lomdus is, it depends whether saving a life is Hutra or Duchuya. If saving a life on Shabbos is Hutra, that there is no concept of Shabbos in, in conflict with saving a life, so you haven't violated Shabbos. That doesn't count as your violation of Shabbos. But if it's Duchuya, if it's that there's still Shabbos and you're violating it, you're just entitled to, because saving a life is more important, then for that conversion candidate, that would constitute violating Shabbos, and they would not be Chayiv Misa if they don't violate Shabbos in any other way. If you didn't follow that, that's okay. I enjoyed saying it anyway, because I think that's a fascinating nafkamina in Hutra and Duchuya. So what comes out of this Chutzani of Nisan Karlitz is, if a utensil breaks, we saw, if it's a large enough shard that it could have a use for you, even if it's an indirect use, not specifically for use, it could be a use for anyone. Somewhere someone has a barrel that needs to be covered. There's no barrel that we've ever heard of, but that shard is large enough for that barrel, you'd be allowed to move it. It's not mukta. It is the same status as the kli from which it broke. That's fundamentally different than a rock or a pebble because that was never ever a kli. It was mukta machmas gufo to begin with. What do we say in our day? Is that true even for things which are disposable in our, in our time? So I might think that um, if you throw it out, then you've declared it, you don't think it has a use. Rebnus and Carlet says that's just because we're spoiled and entitled, but even today it would have a use. So if a utensil breaks and you're not going to pick up the pieces, it doesn't have a use for you. The, the shot glass that broke was in such small, small shards, it had no use. So better to clean it up indirectly and not touch it directly, because duchuya not hutra, unless that's impossible and it would pose a danger, then you could pick it up directly. Now he adds in source 58, that you're even allowed to move mukta to prevent harm caused by non-mukta. In other words, bor pasuach You've got a hole in the ground. You got a pit. It's a danger. Someone could fall into it. You're allowed to carry mukta in order to cover that hole, that pothole, so no one falls into it. You're allowed to carry it in the Carmelis and to use it to cover. So you're not only allowed to move Muktzah if they can cause harm, you're even allowed to move Muktzah in order to prevent a non-Muktzah item from causing you harm. So you carry Muktzah like sticks to cover a pit in Rosh Hashanah that, that can cause harm. So what comes out from the Chutzani here is the next paragraph on the left-hand column, source 58, you're allowed medicine that's muksa. What's the example of medicine that's muksa? Medicine you're not taking on Shabbos is muksa. Maybe muks kiss. I don't know. But let's say the person who takes that medicine is away for Shabbos. That medicine has no use or value to you. It's muksa. But if it's in a place where children can get access to it and it's dangerous, you'd be allowed to move it, says Rav Nissen Karlitz. That com- that's what comes out of this psaac. So let's summarize what we saw so far tonight. Shards of a broken kli that broke either on Friday or on Shabbos are not muktz if they have another use. They're not muktz even if they're in a location where that other use is not available to you. On the other hand, rocks, pebbles, stones, wood, they're muktz machmas gufa, they can't be moved. Even if you have a use for them, like a paperweight or the like, or a doorstop. So, um, and if the broken shards that serve no purpose can cause harm, then you're allowed to move them. If you throw out the broken shards before Shabbos, then you cannot use them on Shabbos. 
because the action of throwing them out reveals that they're no longer useful to you. Okay? So now that we gave all that background, let's get into some practical examples of this in our everyday life. The first is not in our everyday life, but if you live in Israel, it is a practical example. Still, believe it or not. Israeli milk bags. Israeli milk bags. You remember, you know, you got the little pitcher and the milk bag. First of all, there are a few things better, a few things better than an ice shoko in a plastic bag that you bite off the corner and squeeze in your mouth. There are a few things on a hot day more refreshing or delicious, long before lactose intolerance to them, than, uh, than a little shoko in a plastic bag. What is the status of the plastic bag when it's, open, when it's empty, when it's done? What's the status of, you make a cup of coffee, and let's say you put a cup of Splenda in it, and now the Splenda packets are empty, and they're ripped up. What's the status of the Splenda packaging? I don't mean the box, the large pack. I mean the actual Splenda little packet. You finish the potato chips, and now you have the potato chips bag. What's its status? So everyone agrees that if the bag was ripped open in a way that it can't be reused, it's muktzah. It's like a cleat that has no use. It's muktzah. It's done. It's it's finished. So, Shlomo Zaman and Shulchan Shlomo, source 59, and uh, Askan Magachir Morty points out that in the first month we discussed this, do you have to tovel the bag holder? What's its, what's its status vis-a-vis holding the food? It's indirect contact with the food, so you don't have to tovel it. Shlomo Zaman Orbach, source 59, Shulchan Shlomo says the following. He says that an empty milk bag is mukza. Why? It has no use. A milk bag, which is completely empty of the milk, you finish the milk, so it's muktzah. So now let's say you have that milk holder, and you have the bag, which is empty, and you need to drop a new milk bag inside the milk holder. How do you get out the old bag, which is muktzah? You go to the garbage, you turn the holder, where's my camera, upside down, and you shake it out till the plastic bag falls out. The plastic bag is now muktzah. It's empty, it's useless, it's not a clay, and therefore, and therefore, you can't touch it, you can't uh, move it directly, so if you want to take it out of the milk holder so you can put a new bag in, you have to, you have to shake it out. The same would also apply to open sugar packets or Splenda packets. Because they're muktzah machmas gufo. They're garbage. They become garbage once you empty the splenda from it and once you rip them open in such a way that they can't be reused. So, Rosh Hashanah continues. So what you should do is, if you're worried, let's say, that your milk thing, I think that's a technical name for it, is sticky, so the bag is going to stick to it, and when you turn it over over the garbage and shake it, it's not going to fall out. So Shlomo Zalman, he had a Yiddish cup, he gave you a great suggestion. Leave a little bit of milk in the bag, then take the bag out of the holder, drink the milk or put it in, spill the milk into your cereal, and then you can drop the bag in the garbage. It's not muktzah until it's in your hand, and therefore you're allowed to, therefore you can put it in the in the garbage. Oh. What if you have a, what if you have a squeezable um container of like ketchup or mustard or something like that. Is that Noam Kamenetsky? Now I am. Now I am. Now I am. It's great to have you, Noam. We love you. So yeah, so the same would be true. Once you squeeze the ketchup out of the little ketchup packet, then the packet is muktzah. 
מוצמח מסקופו. אוקיי, hold on, everyone relax, we'll get to that right now. Relax. So if you anticipate the empty milk that will not fall out, that's the suggestion he gives. Now Rav Yashav Paskins, Rav Yashav is quoted in the Shalme Yehuda, Perak Vav, that although ripped sugar packets are mukta, an empty milk bag is not mukta. Why? Because the bag can be reused by filling it with other liquids or putting some milk back into it and putting it back in. It's unusual, it's unlikely that you'll do that, but in theory you could do that, whereas the empty sugar or Splenda packet, you're never going to do it. So therefore the milk bag still has the status of being a kli, even when it's empty, but the empty Splenda packet is no longer a kli. The Yorcha Shabbos explains, based on the above, Shevet HaLevi, that Rabbi Yoshev held that since it, in essence, a milk bag can be reused, it's a kli, and it's only because we're, we're, we have an abundance. Again, we're a spoiled generation. We have the luxury of having a new milk bag, new milk carton, new milk. So, um, so therefore, that's why we throw it out. But really, in essence, it's a, it's a kli. So all of that is number, is number one. So what do you do, like you say, the sugar packet, the splendid packet, how do you throw it out? It's mukta. You make yourself a cup of coffee, and you empty the splendid into the cup of coffee. So while it's in your hand, you can throw it directly in the garbage. But let's say you're sitting at the table and somebody brought you a cup of tea and they put down a Splenda packet and you emptied the packet into your tea while you sat there, then you put the packet back on the table. At that point, the packet is, is mukta, is mukta. How are you going to get rid of it? We're going to get to. But let's get to the second example first, which is what is the status of a plastic utensil? For example, um, a yogurt carton, an empty milk carton, or empty milk or plastic. You know, we have orange juice in uh, plastic. We don't even drink it out of cartons anymore. So Shlomo Zalman Paskins, that plastic utensils that were thrown out on Shabbos are muksa because they're like the broken needle. Remember the Shulchan Aruch distinguished between a large shard that still could have a usage and a broken needle where the minig is to throw out all broken needles. Even though the broken needle can still be used to take out a splinter, but the minig is to throw out all broken needles. So Shlomo Zalman says... How do you view a plastic utensil today? You finish the yogurt. You finish the yogurt from the thing. So, you finish the orange juice. Uh, plastic cup, bowl, or plate. Let's say we have a disposable cutlery, disposable utensils. So, Shlomo Zaman says, they're like the broken needle, that once they're in the garbage, they're, they're, um, they're mukta. Even before they're in the garbage, they're mukta. When you finish the yogurt, the yogurt container is now mukta. When you finish the plastic utensil or cutlery, it's now mukta. However, if they're dirty, then you can move them because of another heter. We're going to get to later on, but there's a category called graf shorei, which means, a tech, uh, strictly speaking, translates to a bucket of filth, a bucket of excrement. We'll get to it later. Something which is smelly, something which is disgusting, something which is disturbing, um, has its own rules of mukta. So you'd be allowed to move you know, that empty yogurt container is going to start to smell, it's going to start to spoil. The empty plastic that you used to eat out of, it's going to sit there, it's going to start to mold or spoil or smell. So Rav Yashiv would paskin that plastic utensils, Rav Yashiv would paskin that plastic utensils, since they can be reused, the only reason we don't reuse them is because we're spoiled. They're not mukta because technically they can be reused. But even Rav Shlomo Zalman, who said no, they lose Torah's kli, they're, 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 th- they're meant to be thrown out today, we're a spoiled generation, true. But because we're spoiled, we're used to throwing it out. Therefore, it loses the status of Kli. But he would also agree that you could throw it out because it has the status of Graf Shorai. 
Now, Lamaisa, source 60. Lamaisa. In source 60, the Orcha Shabbos writes the following. He paskins that the above machlokas of Shlomo Zaman and Rav Yashiv really depends on what is the contemporary practice. You could really distinguish between these different examples. An empty milk or the empty Splenda packet, everybody knows it's garbage. And therefore it's muktzah from the moment that it completes its use. We don't. But if you needed to rinse off, I know some people that do. If you wanted to rinse off the plastic cups, my kids go through plastic cups. Don't tell this to my friend uh, David Moshe. My kids go through plastic cups like Costco can't supply them fast enough. It drives me nuts. A new plastic cup, every five minutes they want a cup of water. So... Yeah, we throw out plastic cups. But in theory, you could rinse it off. Plastic forks, knives, and spoons. Come on, who here hasn't been on a vacation where you brought your own food and plastic cutlery and you miscalculated the amount of cutlery you need so you find yourself rinsing off plastic forks, knives, and spoons? This is a safe space. We're allowed to admit that that happened. So, in, in other words, it's made in such a durable fashion, it's designed that it can be rinsed off and reused. So the Rosh Shabbos distinguishes. Nobody is ever saying, oh, that's Splenda Packet. People are stealing Splenda packets, but nobody's stealing the empty Splenda packet in order to fill it with extra sugar or Splenda from home. Nobody's doing that. So that, everybody agrees, is garbage. Everybody agrees. Nobody's keeping the yogurt container in order to use it as some sort of a vessel. But that's different than a plastic fork, knife, spoon, or bowl, or plate, or cup, which people, in theory, would rinse and reuse. They're only not doing it out of convenience, but not because it is not designed to be used more than once. So the Rosh Paskins that everything depends. Our plastic items, even though they're not reused, they could be reused, and therefore they're not muksa. But an empty bag of milk or a sugar packet that would never be reused is muksa. Rav El says he asked Rav and he also agreed that plastic utensils are not muksa even if they're thrown out, generally, because they, in theory, could be reused. So, there's a big nafkamina. You can clear the table of plastic, cutlery, bowl, spoon, and cup, without any indirect way, because it's never mukta. But your Splenda packets, or your empty yogurt container, or your empty bag of milk, would have the status of mukta, and therefore, they'll be governed by certain rules of how to throw it out, which we will get to. A third example the Yorcha Shabbos has in Source 61 is a broken, a key with no lock. A key with no lock. Mavteach she'enaroi l'shimosh klal. She'achlivu asam in ol shalabayasaru muktza kishar shivrei kelim. She'enam ru'uyim l'shimosh. You know you have a bunch of keys on your keychain that you have no idea what they go to? Even if you don't work for Atzala? So, those keys are muktza. If those keys don't belong to any particular lock, you change the locks, or you moved, or you have no idea what those keys belong to, a key that doesn't have a relationship with a lock, is considered to be muktzah. Kashar shivrei kelim in the shimush. It's like a broken vessel. The key goes with the lock. A key without a lock is like a is like a broken a broken vessel. However, he writes in the footnote that if you give the key, if you look at the 
מי שנוסע מחוץ לעיר ועם הצרור, מבטיח לו שבייסו, אין מבטיח לזה למוקצה אף שאפשר להשתמש במחוסס או להליך החוץ לתחום. What if you carried the keys away from where the lock is? Do you say because you're at such a distance now they're מוקצה? No, because at least in theory, they still have a שייכס to a, to a lock. In a footnote he writes, I'm sorry, that if you give the old key to a kid to play with, it's not מוקצה. Because now you turn the key into a toy. So the key is a toy, it's not מוקצה, and it's permissible. And if you're on vacation or you're far away from where the lock is, the key is also not מוקצה. Because the key doesn't have to be able to be used right now with the lock. It just has to have a lock that it's used for in order to not be considered a broken, a broken key. Okay? This is a good logical place to stop for tonight. I appreciate everybody's flexibility going a little bit late. Next week, we're going to pick it up. We didn't get to the question of the button. We talked about broken kalim, but we didn't get to the question of what about something broken that you're meant to put back on? That also happens all the time. Let's say you have a dollhouse. I have a lot of daughters. So let's say you have a dollhouse. The door of the dollhouse snaps off, but you're able to easily reattach it. A button comes off, and you intend on re-sewing it. What's the status of something that's broken, but it's not really broken, right? If you break the shot glass, and it broke into a million little pieces, it is broken in an irreversible, irreparable way. But when a button falls off, it's broken, but not in an irreparable way. It's going to be sewn back on. So what is the halacha of a button that falls off, or the door, let's say, of a, of a, uh, of a Barbie house, a dollhouse, that could easily be snapped back on. We'll uh, pick up with that in Mirza Shem next week. Thank you again to the Bravermans for sponsoring. Neshama Shev and Aliyah. And uh, if anyone wants to sponsor future weeks, please be in touch with our wonderful chairman. Have a great night, everybody. Sure, thank you.